Welcome to Digital Detectives, reports from the battlefront. We'll discuss computer forensics, electronic discovery, and information security issues and what's really happening in the trenches. Not theory, but practical information that you can use in your law practice, right here on the Legal Talk Network. Welcome to the 95th edition of Digital Detectives. We're glad to have you with us. I'm Sharon Nelson, president of Sensei Enterprises, a digital forensics, cybersecurity, and information technology firm in Fairfax, Virginia. And I'm John Simic, vice president of Sensei Enterprises. Today on Digital Detectives, our topic is securing Office 365, an ethical imperative for lawyers. Before we get started, I'd like to thank our sponsors. We would like to thank our sponsor, SiteLock, the global leader in website security solutions. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. We'd also like to thank our sponsor, PINow.com. If you need a private investigator you can trust, visit PINow.com to learn more. Our guest today is Brandon Kaler who is responsible for delivering a core set of security capabilities to every Office 365 customer. He runs a team of program managers who are designing the next generation of security assessment and protection experiences in Microsoft 365. Brandon has worked for more than 20 years in technologies ranging from U.S. Navy submarine weapon systems to LAMP stack development to .NET custom application development and dozens of different problem spaces. Security is the hardest problem space he's ever worked on and also his favorite. Lastly, and this is according to Brandon, Star Wars is better than Star Trek, although I don't agree. <laughs> Having said <laughs> that, <laughs> thanks for being with us, Brandon. <laughs> My pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, Brandon, let's start by talking about what Office 365 is, how many flavors of it Microsoft is offering, and maybe why I'm hearing the words, as opposed to Office 365, I'm hearing Microsoft 365 these days. So take all that in any order you want. Sure. Yeah. Thanks for the question. Uh, it's a good one. So Office 365 is a productivity office offering that Microsoft has had in the marketplace for a few years now. Um, it consists of a bunch of different components, including identity management, exchange and messaging features, documents storage through SharePoint Online and OneDrive for Business, including uh, Microsoft Teams and Yammer and yada, 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 a bunch of stuff that's in that sort of package. What Microsoft has realized is that that is great, uh, but that a lot of our customers also buy other services like Windows and Windows services. They buy a lot of Azure and so forth. And so the Office 365 continues to be in the marketplace. It's got, I'd say, three basic flavors. There is a consumer version. So you and your family could have Office 365 to basically run Office on your desktops and so forth. There's a small and mid-sized business version where you get kind of just the basics. You get basic email, basic document storage, Outlook desktop client, and, and full versions of Office. And then there's the enterprise versions. And there's a bunch of different flavors of that. And there's a bunch of fancy Features often focused on premium security uh, value on top of that. So all that is just Office 365. And Microsoft 365 is an extension of all that to bring everything at Microsoft that's services-oriented into one big offering so that a customer basically buys Microsoft 365 and has everything they need to run their entire IT operations. Well, Brandy, do you have any sense as to how many lawyers are using Microsoft 365 and, and what's driving them there? So it's often difficult to 
categorize organizations like by lawyers or not lawyers. And Microsoft has surprisingly little information about exactly what all of our customers do as their day-to-day business. I do know that 90% of the Fortune 500 companies are on Office 365 and that 100% of those companies employ lawyers in some form or fashion. Um, (laughs) So my sense is that there's a lot of lawyers that are using it. There's a lot of features that are built into Microsoft 365, including data loss prevention, e-discovery, a bunch of compliance features and and retention and legal hold and things like that that lawyers are very, very interested in and that are very usable in the Office 365 platform. Yeah, we've been been asking the question a lot and we see between 30 and 50% of hands go up when we give CLEs, Brandon. So that's kind of a, I I think that's kind of where the, the small market is to medium market for lawyers. But I can believe that the larger enterprises are, are, it's much higher percentage. But we have certainly seen in the last two years, we've seen law firms drive like crazy over to get Office 365. So let's move on to Microsoft 365 Secure Score. Please tell us what it is, because most lawyers don't seem to know. And they're confused when we tell them that getting Microsoft 365, which they know is Office 365, that getting it installed and working doesn't necessarily mean that it is installed securely. I know that there are a lot of pieces to that question, but help us underscore for our listeners, why just getting it working doesn't mean it's installed securely? Yeah, that's a good question. So I'll I'll take that in two parts. I'll first talk about the Microsoft Secure Score, and then I'll talk about why we sort of designed and built the Secure Score, how Microsoft thinks about the division of labor between organizations that are on our platform and and what we kind of do on their behalf. So the Microsoft Secure Score uh, is a couple years old and uh, was invented by my team. And the reason why we built the service was because we had a lot of customers telling us that they didn't understand what security features were available in Office 365 and that they didn't understand what the value of any given feature was. And so at the time, there was a lot of security features for Exchange that would be in the Exchange Administration Console. Security features for Identity would be in the Active Directory portal, and features for Skype for Business would be in the Skype for Business portal. So it was sort of spread all over the place, and customers were like, I I don't know where to go, and I don't know which one is more important than the other. I'm not an IT professional. You tell me what I should be doing. And so we decided to police up all the different security features that a customer had control over and to essentially just do an evaluation and say, okay, how effective is this control, this um, configuration or particular activity, how effective is it at mitigating some specific risk, right? An attacker targeting you to do any given thing. And then we assigned it points. And, you know, the points, there's a certain amount of subjectivity in them. So when we say a a control is worth 50 points, you know, objectively, it might be 49.5 or 51.2 or whatever, but it gets you in a sort of magnitude of this control, this recommendation is twice as valuable as some other control that's maybe worth 10 points. Right. So we essentially put all that together and uh, exposed it in uh, a website uh, that customers can go to. We did a lot of explaining in the Secure Score about what it is that we were asking them to do and why we wanted them to do it. And every single control has the ability to take the action right then and there. And um, when we shipped it to customers, they were delighted that they had a nice, clean stack rank list of all the stuff that they could do and with enough information there to make a decision like this control uh, will make this sort of change and impact these users. And I can decide whether that impact is acceptable to me or not. So this balance between security and productivity uh, was a 
important consideration for most of our customers. In the past, in the Wayback Machine, customers would do these things, they would run these tools called baseline security analyzers, and they would do it fairly infrequently. And what would happen is the baseline security analyzer would come back and say, these are the 10 things you must do, and these 20 things are you know, moderate value, moderate importance, and these things were low value. And customers would look at that list and they'd be like, all 10 of the things that you're telling me that I have to do are not possible for me because my organization has some kind of idiosyncrasy. And they were always frustrated by that. Like, you're telling me I have to do this, and I'm telling you this doesn't work for my organization. So the secure score basically denudes the narrative there of any like subjective evaluation, like this is critical or medium or high, and instead just says, look, you can either do one thing for 50 points or five things for 10 points, same security value, right? You make the choice about what works for your organization specifically. All right, so that's the first part of the question. What is Microsoft Secure Score? Second part of the question is really about a division of labor. A lot of customers are used to their IT operations being kind of on-prem focused. We call it on-prem, on-premises. They've got a computer that's in their office, and uh, maybe they've got some servers that do some set of things for them uh, and so forth. But over the, the last five years, most productivity services and a huge number of other types of services that people use have moved to the cloud. And basically what that means is that you, the, the organization, the customer, don't have any control over the, the server that's running a particular piece of software. You're storing your data in a place where you have no idea where it's at. Uh, you know, and the service provider is, is put it somewhere that makes it super convenient uh, for you, that makes it it's usually geographically close to where you are, and they've added a lot of special sauce to make sure that it's secure so that you don't have to do any of that stuff. You don't have to know how to patch servers or install software or configure firewalls or any of that kind of stuff. So in this case, in Office 365's case, Microsoft does all that for you. So everything that is super far down the stack, networking, machine hardware, operating systems, configuration core operating systems, all the scanning and patching and antivirus configuration, all of the deployments of new versions of Exchange or SharePoint or whatever, we handle all that. And we do it in a way that's functionally transparent uh, to the end user. They don't notice that Exchange, for example, is, is doing deployments every single day to you know, hundreds of thousands of servers all over the world. You don't notice it. So that's all great. Most customers sort of get that they don't want to have to do that work, and they're happy to let Microsoft make sure that that infrastructure is all super secure. But in the end, there's still users out in the world with computers and mobile devices that are connecting to that data. They're authoring that data. They're uploading it to the service and so forth. And attackers are onto that. They know that it doesn't matter how good Microsoft is, there's still what we call front door interfaces um, that users interact with that are vulnerable. And so what the secure score does is basically lay out all the things that you, the customer, you, the organization can do to make sure that the interfaces that your users are interacting with are as secure as they can be. All right. That was a long, that was a long answer. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> no, but it was really, it was really good. And it was very understandable to, to listeners, I think, because they, they do need to understand why Microsoft has one job that it does, but maybe their cybersecurity folks or IT folks also have a job to do on their end. And that's very helpful. And that's a good dovetail to my question, Brandon, is that, you know, who should be using this secure score or taking advantage of it? Is it really the IT folks or is it more business driven? It sounds to me like it's more business driven and then their IT support people, the business users, or in our case, our lawyers, if you will, right, the, the partners or whatever, 
should be saying, this is the way I want to operate and I want to have this kind of a level of security because I'm dealing with all this client confidential data. So the secure score, I think it is being both a very tactical tool that some sort of administrator or operator needs to log on to with some regularity, review and take some sort of action. But the score itself, that sort of top line number and how it moves in an organization, that is a strategic number that the organization as a whole, the executives in the organization, you know, key partners or whoever, they should be aware of what that score is saying about the overall security posture and should be looking to hold the organization accountable to improving it. So when people ask me who's supposed to use the secure score, I say tactically your IT administrators, whether they're security specialists or not, those are the people that should be logging into the secure score and actually taking action. Now your end users likely won't even, like the secure score itself, the, just from a technical perspective, you have to have some kind of an administrative role in the organization in order to log on to it and review the controls and take the actions and things like that. That being said, there's a bunch of ways you can export data from the secure score, specifically to report out about what your organization's score is and what the trend is. And my sense is that should be shared broadly inside organization, department heads, everyone in the C-suite, everybody in your organization be like, okay, here's where our secure score is today. And here's what we think we can do over the next three months or six months or one year in order to improve our security posture, given these constraints, you know, given our budget, given how much uh, time and expertise our, our IT administration folks have or whatever. It, I like to think of it as the secure score represents your posture and that's everybody's business. But the sausage making of, of improving that posture is often constraints your IT administration. Yes, it's, okay. it's that getting to good, right? <laughs> yeah, that's right. right. Exactly. Get to good. So for... A lot of folks, they don't really understand the key threats that law firms and other organizations might need to be concerned about in the cloud. Can you help them out just a little bit with that? Yes. The threats are, I would say they're complicated. They're oftentimes very straightforward, but there are there's a fairly long list of them. I try to group them into the way that the security community typically talks about risk is by focusing on the types of attackers that they're being targeted with. And those attackers execute something called a kill chain. Now, a kill chain is a military term used to sort of walk through. These are the steps that uh, an enemy will take to achieve some sort of goal. You know, step one, you know, get your tanks to the front line. Step two, give those tanks giant bullets. Step three, shoot the bullets at the enemy. Step four, you know, advance. And so IT organizations or attackers that are going after organizations have a very similar sort of thing. It usually starts with some sort of identity breach. It's often called considered a toehold. And so protecting your identities is usually a P0, like a priority zero. You must do that because with an identity inside of an organization, you can do a huge number of other things. And those things include lateral movement. If you have one user's account, usually you can tell what other users are in that same organization and target them, right? So just as an example, let's say I send you a spear phishing email and you get suckered by that. You, you decide you really, you love the Seattle Seahawks, go Hawks, and you want to catch a pass from Russell Wilson, you click the link, you log in and it redirects you back and you're like, oh, that's weird. But what the attacker's done is stolen your identity, and they now use to log in as you, and they look at your global address list, and they say, oh, look at all these users. I'm going to dump that out, and I'm going to say, oh, this guy's a CEO, and this guy is the chief financial officer, and this person works in accounting, and you know these people all work in IT, and these people are administrators. And so I'm going to go after these five people. They send them phishing emails, and very similar thing. They want to catch a pass from Russell Wilson, too, and so they, they get suckered in. 
Once that happens, usually an attacker is trying to do something called elevate privilege, right? So being a regular user, not that valuable. You can do a certain number of things. You can steal all the data that that one user has, but not necessarily all the data in the organization. And so, you know, usually the toehold identity theft is for any regular random organization. Attackers very quickly pivot, they move laterally, and they look to elevate their privilege. Now, once they've done that, they like to do things like entrench themselves, which is to say, find ways to maintain their access to that organization, even though you do things like change the password. Right? So there's a bunch of techniques that they use there. They can install malware on your local computer. They can do things like inject mail forwarding rules into your exchange accounts so that if somebody sends you an email that says, here's the invoice, can you check that out? The mail forwarding rule will say, oh, if you see invoice in the subject line, I want you to forward it to this Yahoo account. And the attacker is sitting over there on that Yahoo account, gets that invoice and says, oh, check this out. I'm going to change the bank routing number on this invoice and send it on to the final user of that. And then that end user will pay that invoice, not to the person who originally wrote it, but to the attacker, because they'll pay to the other bank branch. an example of how that works. Um, so entrenchment's a big thing. And then data exfiltration is super common. Um, attackers very often are looking for information, very specific information, especially legal organizations or folks that deal with any kind of intellectual property. And they can often be stolen and resold on the black market. They will often look to disrupt your operations by deleting critical data, or they'll look to do things like data spillage. If you happen to have some protections like data loss prevention or whatever, they will look for data that fits the bill but doesn't have that protection, and they'll, and they'll try to basically leak it uh, outside of the normal boundaries. So I'm always a little reticent to do the, like, here's all the scary things that attackers can do to you. Um, the list is super long, but in general, the identity theft, the lateral movement, elevation of privilege, data exfiltration entrenchment, those are high-level risks that every organization needs to be concerned about. I think that was pretty scary. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I, I did, did my Thank best. you, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, before we move on to our next segment, let's take a quick commercial break. At least 80 of the 100 biggest law firms in the country have been hacked since 2011. Protect your firm and your clients from cyber attacks with SiteLock. Their industry-leading cloud-based suite of website security solutions includes website scanning, web application firewall, including distributed denial of service mitigation, and 24-7, 365 US-based customer support. Give your firm and your clients peace of mind knowing their information is secure. Learn more at sitelock.com forward slash legal forward slash digital detectives. Does your law firm need an investigator for a background check, civil investigation, or other type of investigation? PINow.com is a one-of-a-kind resource for locating investigators anywhere in the U.S. and worldwide. The professionals listed on PI Now understand the legal constraints of an investigation, are up-to-date on the latest technology, and have extensive experience in many types of investigation, including workers' compensation and surveillance. Find a pre-screened private investigator today. Visit www.pinow.com. Welcome back to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Today, our topic is Securing Office 365, an Ethical Imperative for Lawyers. Our guest today is Brandon Kaler, who is responsible for delivering a core set of security capabilities to every Office 365 customer. 
So we certainly have heard a lot about SecureScore. Tell us what gaps there might be that lawyers should be aware of in SecureScore. Yeah, it's a good question. So um, I think the SecureScore itself strives very much to show organizations every possible thing that they can do. We consider it a complete inventory. I think lawyers in particular have kind of a unique set of problems that they have to deal with in their in their day-to-day lives, which the SecureScore captures. Uh, there are controls in there that sort of explain why you should do them. Um, and a lot of it just has to do with data security. So I think lawyers work with a lot of privileged and confidential information. And there's a bunch of features in Office 365 that help them do that. Um, they include uh, data loss prevention, e-discovery, data classification and categorization, and things like our information protection offerings. And so what those allow you to do is, is as a lawyer, say, this information is uh, part of some litigation, needs to be retained and protected. This information needs to be classified in a specific way and certain policies applied, like this particular email or this document can never go to anybody outside of my organization, as an example. So data loss prevention will make that possible. Other things include this particular type of information always must be encrypted, or it has to have some sort of data policy applied to it that it can't be exposed beyond this set of people that I have specifically specifically granted permissions to see it. So the secure score captures all of that. I think lawyers typically use that in their in their day-to-day lives. In the conversations that I have, and admittedly, I don't have a ton of lawyer friends, uh, but uh, most organizations that I talk to are often surprised by the breadth of security features that are available. And they're often surprised by what we consider to be core security features. So things like multi-factor authentication is something, it's literally at the very top of the list. We tell every single person to do it. And lawyers are often surprised by that. Like, why would I have to do that? What value does that have? <laughs> well, well, Brandon, I know that secure score can be, you know, anywhere from the tens up to the several hundreds. And I think you talked a little bit about this earlier, about what some of the enterprises are doing, where they focus and, and how they can balance these things. But if I'm a smaller law firm, what kind of scores should we realistically be shooting for? Yeah, it's a good question. I get this question a lot from a whole variety of organizations. One of the little bits of genius uh, that I point to in the Secure Score is that it is functionally a game, right? It's a gamified experience. Um, the score itself, you, you can compare it to yourself, but it also includes averages and aggregates for customers that have the same number of people in that organization. Um, there are aggregates by industry verticals. So if you work in specifically legal services, you can see what the average secure score is for other legal organizations. And so people can get some anxiety, like my score is lower than the average or not as high as you know companies of the same size and so forth. And that, that was intentional. We wanted people to have some contextualizing information. All that being said, it doesn't matter how big of an organization you are, you can basically achieve all the points. That being said, we never encourage customers to try to achieve all of the points. So if you were to turn on every single control, the Office 365 suite would become very difficult to use. And so <laughs> what we want you to do is to make smart, intelligent decisions about what trade-offs you're willing to make. And in general, it doesn't matter that much what your score is. What matters is that you're aware of what your score is and that you are constantly working to improve it incrementally over time. So if your score out of the gate is a 50, 
out of a possible of 350. First of all, you should feel pretty pumped because the average right now is about 31. You should be looking to take your score from 50 to 55 next month and from 55 to 57 the month after that, 57 to 62 the month after that, and so forth. Small incremental change results in much bigger impact over the long term than trying to, out of the gate, get a score of 250. All of your users revolt <laughs> and you end up having to regress all those back anyway. And I'm sure you don't have any cheat codes, right? <laughs> no, no cheat codes for that. At least not yet. You know, we're, we're trying to build some easy buttons in there, but yeah. Can you briefly let our listeners know some of the best practices they might follow to get, be, and stay secure in the cloud? Yes. So all will highlight four things. First of all, everybody should go look at the secure score. It is a great piece of information to get you in the right headspace, contextualize what your particular configuration is, and you'll get a sense of what all the options are. So use the secure score is usually the first best practice that you should go after. The second thing that I tell everybody to do is to apply a requirement for multi-factor authentication for everyone in an administrative role in your organization. Earlier, I was talking about elevation of privilege and attackers targeting administrative roles. Once an attacker has an administrative role, they can usually really run roughshod over you. They can do everything that they want to any user they want inside of your organization. And so making sure those accounts in particular are very, very difficult to breach is the second best best practice. And if you look at the secure score, the number one recommendation is to enable MFA for administrators. It's worth 50 points. It's the next closest one is like 20 or 30 points. So it's the most best thing you can do. Third, I would tell everybody to enable auditing for everything. So there's something called a unified audit pipeline and Exchange has a bunch of auditing features and so forth. And what this is, is basically a feature to enable all of the interactions that your users have with the service to be recorded. And what this will do down the road is if you get breached, and everyone should assume they'll get breached at some point, you'll be able to effectively figure out what the bad guy did. So that's a super key thing. And the last thing that I would recommend uh, for most organizations is to figure out how to use the native security management features, being able to do detections and investigations in Office 365 or find a third party. There's two kind of like broad categories, either a SIEM, a security uh, information and event management platform, or a CASB, a cloud app security broker. Microsoft has a CASB called MCAS, Microsoft Cloud App Security, and it's got a bunch of very cool features in it. And it is crucial that you're actually doing something valuable to detect and be able to effectively respond to any sort of malicious activity. Those are the four things I would say. Perfect. Well, Brandon, I knew you talked about some of this stuff earlier, but some of the common security gaps in all organizations, including law firms, do you want to expand on anything you've already said? Yeah, I mean, that's, I, I pretty much hit on the, the top ones there. Even as awesome as the secure score is not nearly enough people go and look at it. So I wish more people used it. I think we'd find a lot fewer breaches in the New York Times uh, being reported in the New York Times if people did. (laughs) That admin MFA thing, our adoption rates are still much lower than we want them to be, although Microsoft is taking significant steps to change those, to essentially insert uh, friction in your organizations by making mandatory policies that those are all by default. The auditing and the MCAS-SIEM point is definitely bigger companies. The point at which your organization is large enough where you start hiring security specialists is the point at which most organizations, those are kind of the big gaps. It's the small and mid-sized companies that they've got the IT guy and the IT guy is the all things guy. And they're often not security specialists. And so using the secure score makes those sorts of features just much more accessible to them. It's like a, a security education and action platform all sort of rolled into one. Well, I'm with you for that MFA boy. <laughs> We're harping about that all the time. Yes, yes. You're 
you're preaching to the choir here for sure. We only have just a very brief time left, but you know, I certainly wanted to give you the chance to tell us what Microsoft does to secure lawyers and their data in the cloud. So I described this division of labor uh, between Microsoft and our organizations. What Microsoft does in the cloud is like the amount of investment, the number of people, like thousands and thousands of people. It is like tens and hundreds of millions of dollars a year that Microsoft spends to make sure that everything that's in our cloud is super secure. If I had an hour, if I had 10 hours, I could walk you through all of the very complicated uh, systems that we have in place to ensure, for example, that none of our operators have any standing access to anything inside the data center. Uh, we've got features where if you call Microsoft and say, we want you to like restore this mailbox in the service, it would require your approval. Like we would generate a request that would go to you. You would have to say, I allow Microsoft to do this particular, you know, data access point and, and at, only at the point at which they approved it would that thing actually happen. So there's a lot of stuff that sort of goes into that on the service side, on the cloud side. In terms of what Microsoft does for organizations to help them, the Secure Score is a, a good example of that, although there are many, many other things. We're constantly innovating uh, to add new features. And more importantly, we listen to our customers, we pay attention to how we see them get breached, and we use that information to change configuration. So that admin MFA is a good example. Today, there's a feature uh, that's available in preview called baseline protection that allows a customer to apply as a policy. Everyone in an admin role will be required to use MFA. And in the not too distant future, I'm hoping basically early next year, that feature will be on by default. Like customers won't be able to, they won't have to opt into it. It'll just be on by default. That sort of stuff is crucial for helping organizations get right and protect themselves in the long term. Well, this has been just an extraordinary podcast and there's been so much great information. I think people probably after listening to this, that our listeners will understand Secure Score a whole lot better. And I'll bet the point of greatest confusion is still the difference between Office 365 and, and Microsoft 365. And, and I don't think we're going to fix that today. But but Brandon, you, you are tremendously eloquent, obviously doggone smart. And I think you've helped lawyers come a long way toward understanding that you can't just install 365 and then just let it go. You've got some ethics rules that demand that you do more than that. And secure score is where they should be going. So we thank you so much for joining us today, Brandon. It's been a wonderful discussion. It's been my pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Well, that does it for this edition of Digital Detectives. And remember, you can subscribe to all the editions of this podcast at LegalTalkNetwork.com or on Apple Podcasts. And if you enjoyed our podcast, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. And you can find out more about Sensei's digital forensics, technology, and cybersecurity services at SENSEIENT.com. We'll see you next time on Digital Detectives. Thanks for listening to Digital Detectives on the Legal Talk Network. Check out some of our other podcasts on LegalTalkNetwork.com and in iTunes.